Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 364, Before the English Came. Last time we led with Lord into what became known as the Great Migration, the exodus of many English people across the Atlantic to the Americas. Now, I have not been looking forward to this topic for quite a while, I have to say, and if you will just indulge me, let me tell you why, and this leads to about, I don't know, three or four minutes of apology and explanation and rationalisation. Anyway, first of all, it is of course not quite the start of the subject of colonisation and empire because we've already started that with Tudor Ireland. But now we're going to really get going. And it is a touchy subject for many obvious reasons. It is at once a story of extraordinary human endeavour and extraordinary human tragedy on a vast scale, which makes it emotive. And let me give you a little example from my personal experience of an exchange with a very intelligent person who I like very well indeed. At some point, said person airily said to me that the only reason for colonisation was greed, at which I demurred a little bit and said, well, there were other reasons as well. Before I knew what was happening, I stood accused of justifying genocide. So, not 60 in 0.5 seconds. Explaining is, of course, not justification or excusing. So it's emotional, all this. It's also easy to get, get it wrong from a couple of key angles. One, most complicated, is that when I was taught history of empire at school, and indeed the history of Ireland at school, the tone was very straightforward, objective 
and historical. There was no trumpet blowing, no Britain coloured the world red hurrah and brought civilization and so on. But on the other hand, nor was there any view of the colonised, really, which is something which has changed for the better. So I'll try to do that better, but inevitably I'll get things wrong. And of course, I don't have that much space. This is a history of England after all. I have worried about this for some time. I simply cannot do a history of Canada, the US, the Caribbean, India, Africa, Australia and New Zealand, the Pacific Islands and so on. My head would explode and anyway, you'd all leave. This is a history of England and inevitably England within Britain from 1707, not of the British Empire. So I apologise in advance for those who would like more depth. And finally, and I mean finally for this navel-gazing introduction, well, not actually quite finally, I'm aware that quite a few of you will know a lot more about American, Canadian and Caribbean history than I do. So I am going to mess up multiple times. Be gentle with me, though I am always happy to be corrected and indeed educated. So one final bit of preamble and apology. Since I'm going to talk about pre-Columban America, I'm obviously going to talk about the nations and people who live there. And since it's impossible to get through a day without a generalisation, I know that, by the way, from Jeff Goldblum in some film or other, I'm going to have to talk about the various peoples that live there with a general name somehow. I have been dimly aware of a debate about nomenclature and have therefore read books and articles on the subject. My understanding is that terms such as Indian, Native American, American Indian are all acceptable. So that is what I have used. But if I get it wrong, again, please forgive me. So that's that then. First preamble completed. First scene setter coming up. The Great Migration is, as I understand it, a phrase coined by historians of the New England's history specifically. And insofar as the phenomenon was covered in my school history education, it is this which was covered which on reflection in the maturity of now, or my later youth as I call it, is a little odd. Because the Caribbean didn't really get much for mensch, but the lion's share of English emigration in this period went not to New England, but to Ireland and the Caribbean. There are some figures coming up for you, so you might want to get your pens and paper out now. Not if you're driving though. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin. About... 540,000 people emigrated from England during this period. Give or take, I think, is probably important to say. I am assuming, because the figures are from Tim Harris, that this figure therefore excludes the Scots. I don't have the total figures for the Scots to 1700, but by 1641, at least 30,000 Scots had gone to Ireland. To add to that to, is the 162,000 English that went to Ireland. So, Let's say a marketing execs, 200,000 people went to Ireland, fingers crossed, T Tim has got it right. So the remaining 377,000 went to the Americas, 222,000 to the Caribbean, 116,000 to Chesapeake and Maryland, and about 39,000 to New England, and smaller numbers still to Canada. But in a sense, it is still the New England migration that links us to the theme we are on about the build-up to civil war in England because the story of New England has been dominated by the idea of a flight from religious persecution, though religious motives played a part in many early colonisation efforts, but not specifically to escape persecution. So, 
the timing of the migration to New England is also of interest. Are your pens yet again ready? Here we go then. Emigration was concentrated in the period 1628 to 1640. And within that, there were two distinct phases. This is to New England, by the way. The first, from 1628 to 1633, is often referred to as the Winthrop Migration. Winthrop was the Puritan minister who played such a part in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So this one involved just 2,500 people. The second phase is sometimes referred to as the Laudian Migration, 1634 to 1640, and this involved many more people, between 15 and 20,000. For these groups, the rising tide of Arminianism at the expense of traditional Calvinist practice was a major push factor. So it's this group who reflect, if you like, one of the measures of the impact of Lord and Charles's church reformations. It amounts, it has to be said, to less than a half of 1% of the population of England and Wales, which does put it in perspective, although that is not to say that there were not many more, such as Cromwell, who attempted but drew back, or drew back as the fires started to rage in 1641 and kept them at home. And that's not to say either, incidentally, that this represents the populations of said colonies by 1700. The demographies of each would be very different. Organic growth was probably most successful in New England, where the population had grown to about 100,000 in 1700 on one estimate, 145,000 by another. So that's a lot of stats, but who does not love a stat or two? After all, if you can't measure it, it might just as well not happen like walking to get fit. If it's not on my app and the resulting spready, then there was just no point in doing it. I'm aware this is dodgy thinking, by the way. It's clear also that there were other reasons why people went. The aforementioned greed drew many people to the Caribbean in particular, or, to put it more kindly, for the vast majority, the hope of making a better life for themselves. Because for many, this wasn't about the difference between being well-heeled and being healed with gold, it was the opportunity to escape a life of grinding poverty. The 1620s and 1630s were difficult years economically. In one year, wheat prices rose over 50%, and 1623 marks the last year of famine in England. Having said that, over 50% of those that left in 1635-8, for example, were artisans and 20% husbandmen, people not on the edge of poverty, people almost of the middling sort, but probably not doing very well in the 1620s and 30s, maybe. But in terms of the Chesapeake, there was a strong and continual stream of indentured servants who would have been very poor indeed, with few prospects at home. What I'm saying in short is that religion probably did provide a push, and emigration fell dramatically after the end of personal rule, but the reasons varied, which is where we came in. I'm not quite sure the best order to do all of this, but I've made a choice. But in terms of our period, I assume it's 1600 to 1660 sort of thing, although I won't really do Jamaica and the Great Design. And we'll need to talk about the Caribbean, Chesapeake and New England, essentially. And it'd be good to talk briefly around the French, Dutch and Swedes to boot from Canada to the middle colonies. But I'll start by trying to sketch out a super brief history in this episode of the indigenous peoples of North America before colonisation, as I tried to do in West Africa. And as I promised, Katie, I would try to do many moons ago. 
The episode comes with apologies for the necessary brevity and many, many mispronunciations, no doubt, to paint some picture of the world that was about to be torn apart. Katie did, by the way, give me a delightful link to a map which showed the possible ranges of nations there. It's at nativeland.ca, so that's native-land.ca, and I've put a link on the website post. Altogether, the episodes on the English colonisation of the Americas to 1660 will take about four episodes. Alice Klar? A number of the authors discussing the Americas before 1492 tend to deal with the Southern and Central Americas slightly differently, partly because of the population differences. Obviously, calculating population is fiercely difficult. So, let me put it in terms of the ranges that I have seen expressed. Ignoring the lower-end estimates, a mid-range for the Americas south of the Rio Grande was put at about 47 million, and then a high estimate of about 100 million. The civilizations the Spanish encountered included many with dense populations and some very big cities by European standards. We've talked before about the massive population catastrophes that occurred through disease and violence, but despite the disastrous death rates, the remaining indigenous population remained significant, and that does affect the nature of the societies that emerged under Spanish and Portuguese rule, quite different to much of the future further north, where for that and other reasons, a much less mixed society emerged in the first century. For the Northern America, the areas covered by the US and Canada today, the estimates vary from a mid-range of about 4.5 million people to a higher of 12 million people, and the higher figure does seem to be generally accepted. The general story seems to be that technological, social and political developments came more slowly in the North and Central and Southern Americas, possibly because plants that have become staples such as corn, squash and beans originated in southern latitudes and took time to be adapted for cultivation further north. But in the southwest of North America, it's thought that from around 300 BC, Hohokam and Anasazi people developed complex irrigation systems for agriculture and lived in centralised towns in structures of stone or adobe. Some buildings were enormous. So, the Pueblo Benito in Cacho Canyon in modern New Mexico was spread over two acres and had something like 650 rooms in four storeys with ceremonial rooms incorporated into it. Although that fell into disuse by about 1150 AD, the Cacho Canyon culture must have reflected a sophisticated trade network. Acoma Puebla, about 100 miles south, is, I am told, one of the oldest continuously inhabited settlements in the US, and it was established around the 12th century AD. Horticulture began to emerge in the lower Mississippi Valley after about 1500 BC and may have domesticated a different range of plants like gourds and sunflower, but then began to grow maize as well around this time. Societies in the area before this probably created earthen mounds, some dated as far back as 3500 BC, but in the 1500 BC period, particularly impressive earth mound structures were discovered at Poverty Point in northeastern Louisiana, still standing about 70 feet high above the Mississippi Delta. It's thought that the mounds were created very quickly, and therefore how remains something of a mystery, but must at very least 
have demanded large amounts of labour and sophisticated organisation. From sometime around 500 BC, a series of peoples and societies formed around part-time or full-time farming emerged in the Midwest and Southeast of North America, and Middleton and Lombard in their book Colonial America identify some common cultural practices that these societies all shared. So, they all built mounds for burial or religious ceremonies, they developed urban settlements, practised horticulture in some way, and to some degree at least, they used pottery and made things with copper. A few cultures and peoples developed within the region. Based on Ohio, the Adena people began to focus more on horticulture, showing signs of becoming more territorial also as time went by. The Hopewell people from around 100 BC and 400 AD were based also in Ohio and along the Illinois and Miami rivers and seem to have lived in substantial towns, and objects have been excavated which came from great distances away, suggesting again widespread trade and commerce networks. The next culture to emerge came in an area I've seen referred to as the American Bottom. I had not heard the phrase before, so I had to search the intertubes, which led me into places I didn't really want to visit. But I understand that what we're talking about here is the floodplains of Mississippi in southern Illinois, an area of rich alluvial soil perfect for agriculture, and also of clay not ideal for building large mounds. That might seem like a non-sectoral, but I mention that because what emerged from about 950 AD was an extraordinary culture noted for its mound building. The centre of the culture was at Cahokia, a city, I suppose you might call it, which grew to a size of about 15,000 people at its height, covering about six square miles with around 120 earthworks. I say might call it a city because although the environment was by definition urban, there seems to have been little of the kind of specialised craft worker, merchant and artisan you might expect. More a huge collection of farmers in a centralised area, though I understand substantial copper workshops have been discovered and copper chisels, awls and various tools along with them, demonstrating that the Mississippian peoples had developed technologies for working metal. I mentioned the mound building thing and clay because at the centre of the city was a massive mound known as Monk's Mound, about 950 feet long, 650 feet wide and 20 feet tall. Now, given that the civilization had no beasts of burden, all the clay used to build all the mounds, as well as Monk's Mounds, had to be carried by hand. And it also had to deal with the problems of heave and subsidence, which is why clay is such a bad material for such things. So... The builders had to build it very, very quickly to avoid the expansion and contraction ruining it while it was going up. And then, very cleverly, they put a layer of sand near the top to deal with moisture changes and capped it all off with compacted clay. Neat. Once again, building such a thing so quickly has led to speculation and theories about social structures and society. Some posit an autocratic leader. Others that the mounds reflect a community-based culture based around ceremony, and indeed experiments suggest that ceremonies from the top of the mound could have been seen and heard clearly by people assembled around its base. But a few things do seem clear enough. Firstly, that some burials reflect the appearance of elite, 
high-status individuals, and therefore that is evidence of social hierarchy. Secondly, the success and extent of Cahukia seems to have been based on the arrival of widespread cultivation of maize in the North of Americas. The previous Hopwell cultures seemed not to have used it, but used plants producing smaller seeds like maygrass, which were less productive and much more difficult to manage. Maize, along with squash and beans, were now becoming the dominant crops and were massively successful. If I can insert the name of an Englishman into this narrative briefly, apologies for that, Thomas Harriet of the 1580s wrote admiringly of maize cultivation that he found and remarked that an acre of corn yielded at least 200 London bushels of wheat. Doing the maths, it appears that in England, 40 bushels of wheat per acre was considered a good yield. So maize seems to have had a stonkingly high yield, and I mean stonkingly. Kahukia declined and disappeared in the 13th and 14th centuries, and the possible explanations for it are legion. Shells on the beach, flies on a... well, there are a lot of them. One has it that deforestation and securing a water supply led to floods and destruction of agricultural land. Or agricultural expansion leading to the destruction of deer and other game that was still needed as part of their diets. Or climate change that would come with the Little Ice Age or even outside invasion, though there seems little evidence for that. But either way, for whatever reason, by around 1300 to 1350, Kahukia was abandoned. At the same time, the Hohokam and Anazi people also abandoned their settlements and migrated to the southwest. It's been suggested that much of this wider change might be connected with climate change, and after all, you and I some time ago have been through the change in climate from 1300 when the medieval warm period came to a close, resulting in the 1315 famine, which may have killed 15% of people in Europe and probably worsening the impact of the Black Death. Climate change in North America generally is thought to have had some wider impacts. Evidence from various sites suggests a rising level of violent death when 1,000 is compared with 1,500, possibly caused by increasing competition for scarcer resources and possibly social discord leading to the collapse of civilizations like Kahukia. It seems that larger scale civilizations were replaced by smaller tribal groups and chiefdoms. Forgive me for digressing briefly before we go on to look at the eastern woodlands, but on the word stonking front, as in stonkingly high yields. It is an odd word till I looked it up. Apparently, its use as a sort of amazingly incredible sort of thing comes from either its original use as a noun, a stonk, and a stonk meant a concentrated massive barrage of artillery fire, a bit of military sang from the Second World War, or maybe from further back from the name of a 19th century game of marbles. And that's all I have to say about stonkingly. Let us then, in this therefore appallingly partial history of the North American peoples, concentrate from, say, 1000 AD on the Atlantic coast, hinterlands and Great Lakes from southern Canada to Florida. Over this area was a linguistically diverse set of nations and peoples, I think broadly four groups. The Algonquian-speaking peoples occupied coastal regions from Newfoundland to North Carolina, but also around the Great Lakes. Muscogean people lived in Georgia and Florida. 
Iroquoian people lived mainly inland from the St. Lawrence Valley southwards to Virginia and the Carolinas, and the Siouan people coastal areas in the Carolinas. Linguistic similarities didn't necessarily mean shared culture or political alliances, but tended to make things easier on occasion. I've put a map on the website. The take-up of horticulture varied somewhat region to region for different reasons. So in California, it's thought population density was low with an abundance of natural resources, and therefore people chose to continue a hunter-gatherer social structure. Further north in northern Canadian regions, agriculture was adopted less because it offered little advantage given the shorter growing season, and game anyway was abundant. But from southern Canada to Florida, farming formed part at least of their subsistence, and social structures changed and adapted to suit. So many eastern woodlands people began to live in semi-permanent villages with maybe 100 to 200 inhabitants in each. Then it's been estimated that a village which had about 20 to 30 dwellings might have had about two to 300 acres under cultivation to support them. Rather later, an Englishman called John White at Roanoke in Virginia had a load of really rather lovely drawings of the people he met and their villages. They're very stylized pictures, but they emphasize highly ordered villages with dwellings organized around small fields with trees and woodlands very close to the villages. One of the many, many things of which I was unaware was that Indian societies where farming was adopted still had a mix of hunting and farming. I suppose I should have realised it, just never thought about it. The proportion of food produced by hunting compared to farming, or vice versa, would vary very wildly, with farming generating between maybe 30 to 70% of the food needs, depending who you were and where you were. Planting crops not only varied according to region, but had to cope with a few characteristics. One of these was the absence of animals that could be domesticated, which I mentioned before, so like oxen or indeed horses, which came once again as part of something as a shock to me. Good golly, Miss Molly, I thought, how did you cope with that? Some species of what might have been an ancestor of the modern horse had existed thousands of years ago in North America, but had become extinct until they arrived again with the Europeans. So, Animal-drawn ploughs were a no-no. Also, there were trees all over the place, as implied by the name Eastern Woodlands, so land clearance was a problem. The main technique used was to kill trees by girdling the tree trunks, so cutting into them to make them die, essentially, and then burning the undergrowth. Crops were then planted in between the stumps, and eventually the stumps were removed. The limitations of the system tended to make intensive agriculture very difficult and soil fertility difficult to maintain over the long term. So villages might up sticks and move every 10 or 20 years or so when the fertility had finally leached away. Or alternatively, many coastline or river communities might practice transhumans, so moving between a summer place of residence and a winter place. But nonetheless, farming techniques were efficient and productive. Here is a neat example, which I have in fact seen some people copy to this very day on the allotment just down the road. So this technique involved planting maize as the staple crop, but along with it you planted beans and squash. The beans and squash could use the maize as support 
and they also help fertilise the soil since beans, of course, replace the nitrogen. Also, if I may make so bold, my fellow allotment owners, when I was one of the number, made the point that they provided ground cover to suppress weeds. Not sure if that's been mentioned in the histories. If not, I offer it up for the general benefit of humankind. Along with the products of hunting, deer, beaver, raccoon, fish, it meant Native Americans had a pretty good diet. So one book noted that beans and maize make a very good combination. And I've already mentioned the high maize yields delivered by farming. It's striking that later, when Europeans start writing about the people they meet, they're full of admiration for their physique. Giovanni di Varanzo in the early 16th century met the Narangasat and described the sachem that he meant, or chief, you might say, I guess, as more beautiful of stature and build I can possibly describe. The pilgrim Thomas Morton described people he met as proper men and women for features and limbs as can be found. I could go on. John White's pictures also show hunters with longbows, with physiques, covered with six-packs, in areas I didn't know you could have any kind of pack. While reading up about this, just as a by-the-by, might I mention a Jesuit, reporting back on his time with the Wendat in Ontario and their response to what I consider one of the greatest inventions of human civilization. I talk, of course, of the handkerchief. They say... We place what is unclean in a fine piece of white linen and put it away in our pockets as something very special. Well, they throw it away on the ground. Now, look, I take the point, Wendats, and if you put it like that, well, it does seem a little odd. And the handkerchief, I appreciate, is a highly contested piece of body furniture, but I think the Wendat may have been underestimating the versatility of this piece of white fine linen. Not only does it allow for the contents to be carefully inspected for, well, for no apparent reason, apparent reason, but inspected anyway, but also it can be used for a variety of supplementary roles. For example, mopping up a spillage of tea or some other beverage, cleaning the faces of small children with the judicious application of some parental saliva, of course, or for use in wiping oil from the dipstick of a car. And I've only just started on the benefits. So I'll leave that one with you. But I think my argument is pretty irrefutable, though you may try to fute it if you wish. OK, let us take a moment's break for any sponsor messages. If there have been any sponsors lovely and delicious enough to have sponsored me this week. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Okay, sit up straight, back to the grindstone. So, Indian societies tended to have a gender split of responsibilities. Generally, foraging and hunting was the bloke's job, and farming was down to the women. And men would often leave the village for long periods hunting, while the women, being based in one place, would also build dwellings, make baskets, mats and cooking implements, prepare food and all that. 
Together with those communities that moved between seasons, one anthropologist has spoken of communities that were constantly joining and splitting up and rejoining. In addition, as villages moved, as described, it might often happen that they would combine with other villages and groups of similar culture and language. As far as hunting is concerned, I am told men invented many ways of hunting and trapping. For example, deer might be driven by creating fire in the undergrowth and then driven into an ambush. Together with the burning of undergrowth to create space for crops, this created in many places a sort of parkland appearance to the countryside. Now this put me in mind, to turn to darker matters, of an article I've read about Australasian techniques of land management, how we are only now beginning to understand that, like many cultures the world over, people found ways appropriate to their needs and environment to manage the landscape. As a keen, if incompetent, lover of reading the English landscape, it's a subject very close to my heart. The point is that the peoples of the eastern woodlands, like anywhere else, managed their environments according to their needs. They burned undergrowth and moved on rather than practising intensive agriculture. They didn't need to store much food, apart maybe for a little corn and some dried fish, because the turning of the seasons would provide the next type of food. When colonists came, including the English, they judged these practices from their own outlook and idiom. They didn't recognise that the Parkland-type landscape was moulded by human intervention. They thought the lack of food storage indicated a lack of forethought and idleness, the lack of intensive agriculture to being backward. Parallels are often drawn between English colonisation with Ireland as England's first colony, and there the English again sought to bring what they thought of as civilization to create what they thought would be a better life for all, colonisers and colonised, by imposing their own method of land management, and saw the pastoral way of life of the Irish as backward. It is something of a tragedy, and returning to my argument with my mate that the motivation for colonisation wears many faces, not just greed, I would argue that it's often the good intentions that you've got to watch hardest. Anyway, back to Native American societies of the eastern woodlands. Where were we? I mentioned something of gender roles, and it's generally agreed that relations between men and women were rather more egalitarian than the patriarchal societies of Europe. Most groups were matrilineal, so the children took their mother's name and looked to her relatives for support and protection. They were often also matrilocal, which is a nice bit of jargon, which I'm told means the dwelling belonged to the woman. Divorce was pretty straightforward, meaning just an agreement between the pair, and it would be the man that left the household in such cases. The basic social unit was the clan or kinship group, again based around matrilineal lines, and in addition to a kinship relationship to their father, the kin of the woman was the group that supported each other and helped women bring up the children. A village, however, was almost always led by a male, by a chief or headman, usually acquired through inheritance, which in the Algonquian people was through the female line. Among the Iroquois, it was the women who chose the chief or sachem, The generally decisions about war and peace were made by the men in a war-making council, which required, incidentally, the agreement of all to go to war. The role of a sachem was to uphold the law, adjudicate in farm disputes, negotiate treaties, control foreign contacts, collect tribute, and so on. And so to war. 
One crucial difference between Indian and, say, English and many European cultures was that ownership of land did not lie at the basis of society and economy in the sense of an individual owning land of private property. Particularly before 1300, when land and resources were plentiful and therefore competition for resources was very limited. Obviously, there is some way in which land played a part in prompting warfare in that tribal groups needed to have access or control access to hunting grounds and all that. But tribe or individual land ownership is not the key. So war was mainly about restoring harmony and balance to the clan. So if someone was killed by somebody, the response was not punishment so much as restoring the balance, say life for a life. The taking of the second life then restored the balance and everything could stop. In war, the object was not to kill the opponent's warriors, but to capture members of the opposing tribe and incorporate them into your own tribe. And the clan would decide whether they were then adopted as an equal or whether they were enslaved. Or alternatively, they might be executed for revenge. Executions were carried out by the whole clan and could be every bit as gruesome as hanging, drawing and quartering or boiling in England. The victim was often progressively maimed, such as having fingers cut off or being scalped before being burned. All the while, the victim was expected to demonstrate courage throughout. The grief of the clan was therefore supposedly alleviated and balance restored. Wars conducted like this have been called mourning wars, that is relating to tears rather than breakfast. Particularly before 1300, this attitude to war tended to limit their ferocity. But things changed a little afterwards, as we'll cover in a moment. But even English colonists remarked that wars between Indians were limited affairs and were over once retribution was achieved and women and children were very rarely killed, although sometimes they were abducted and forced to join the winning group. They were, as one colonist Roger Williams noted, far less bloody and devouring than the cruel wars of Europe. Things may have changed along with the advent of climate from 1300 and global cooling. The impact was particularly harsh on cultures that had become dependent on agriculture, hence the devastating impact of the 1350 cooling on creating famine in Europe. The changes increased pressures on resources and increasing the need for people to migrate in search of better living. Competition for best land began to appear and grow more violent and protracted, and as occasional skirmishes became frequent raids, the concept of restoring balance became something of an escalator rather than a limit to warfare. And the tradition of young warriors proving their courage in war became increasingly embedded. This kind of competition and warfare will have a direct impact on the behaviour of peoples in the northeast as the English start arriving there in the wake of the Mayflower and onwards. Peoples tried to cope in different ways. So archaeologists have found evidence that stockades around villages became much more common in the 15th and 16th centuries. But there were other important mechanisms they used as well, which will be particularly important for our next episodes on the arrival of colonists from these era foreign parts. One of those was in trade and the development of much more intricate trading patterns. One very bamboozling difference between the Native Americans and Europeans was the attitude to trade. For Europeans, obviously, it's about getting to yes. 
the echo there of a negotiating course I went on many moons ago in my salesman's youth. It still burns. But the objective of a trade negotiation is still to drive the very best possible bargain, basically. For Indians, trade meant much more than a commercial relationship. It was an important way of building trust, friendship and relationships. It was, in effect, a form of mutual gift-giving, an aim for both partners to leave feeling magnanimous and grown in status by the generosity of their goods. Gifts were also an important part of treaty-making. It meant that many people starting producing more decorative or tradable goods, such as copper ornaments, shell beads and ceramics. The increased pressure on resources even led peoples to overproduce food, both as a precaution and for trade. Trade in food had never been a big thing before in the land of plenty. One French monk in the 1630s remarked that the Horons in the Great Lakes sowed corn now to produce enough crop for two or three years, either for fear that some bad season may visit them, or else in order to trade it to other nations for furs and other things. Another thing then which can lead us to the point where we reconnect with our story of the English, maybe, is the development of more complex and consolidated forms of political authority. Let me give you two examples, both of which will have a direct effect later on English colonists. The first is the League of the Five Nations of the Iroquois, or Haudenosaunee. It was called the League of Great Peace. How, and indeed when, the League came about is possibly predictably a matter of debate and even legend. In one version, the idea for the League came from an outsider, Dekonowide, the determined man. In the words of a Mohawk historian writing in 1901, Dekonowide was deep in thought and did not notice, perched on the topmost point in the pinery, the great white eagle. Under the bird's keen-eyed scouting protection, Dekanawide's great idea evolved itself into a specific form. Drafting a plan as he sat on the grass, taking an eagle feather, placing it on the ground, that, he said, shall represent the great idea. Such is the story, handed down for the ages, not from father to son, but from mother to children. Whether Decanoide existed or not is under consideration, and when the idea came to fruition is also under serious consideration. Charles Mann records a tradition back to 1150, but there are those who reckon it to be much more like 1450, but either way, pre-Columban. The League involved an agreement of 117 clauses between the Mohawk, Onondaga, Cayuga, Onyeda and Seneca and then after 1720 the Tuscacora too. The agreement defines how decisions will be made, with the agreement of all, and annual meetings to renew bonds of friendship. The lords of the nations were required to refer important decisions of war or peace to all peoples of their nation, and I mean all men and women. The impact of the Great League was to stop violence between these nations, but it was not to stop violence completely, but move it instead towards the League's neighbouring nations, which meant other nations were forced to adapt. So the Susquehannocks migrated into Maryland to escape aggression, and the Wendats or Hurons formed themselves into a confederacy of their own to protect themselves. Other tribal groups also formed, one of them in what would become Virginia. 
between 1571 and 1607, a small number of tribes became part of a confederacy under the leadership of Wahun Sanaquat, or Powhatan, as the English would call him. By the time the English arrived in the area, the confederacy included about 30 tribes with over 600 warriors. Powhatan ruled as primes inter pares, you might say, a chief among many district chiefs. Powhatan and his allies knew something of the Europeans and particularly of the Spanish and a massacre that had inflicted on them in 1571. The pressures and fears of European and Indian incursion and Powhatan's desire to continue to expand his power and confederation would have a major impact on how the English settlement at Jamestown in 1607 would be received, as would the horrors of disease and depopulation affected too, of course. On which note, I think we should end this episode, for want of more time really. Next time, we'll talk about the theory of empire, how the English justified their colonisation of land. We'll talk a little bit about earliest contacts north of the Rio Grande, mainly from the Spanish, and we'll talk about what Eric Williams called the hub of empire, the Caribbean. Until then, everyone, thank you very much for listening, commenting and taking part in all that. Good luck and have a great week. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.